Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with President Biden's address to the nation last night, in which he made an urgent appeal to protect and defend American democracy from MAGA Republicans and election deniers running for office to take over the electoral machinery to bring about a one-party state led by a defeated president who has turned the big lie into a political movement aimed at installing an autocrat in the White House. Joining us is John Nichols, The Nation magazine's Washington correspondent. His books include The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, The Enduring Legacy of Henry Wallace's Anti-Fascist, Anti-Racist Politics, and most recently, Coronavirus Criminals and Pandemic Profiteers, Accountability for Those Who Caused the Crisis. We will discuss his latest article at The Progressive, What's at Stake in the Midterms, Electoral Victory as We Know It and how the Republican candidate for governor in Wisconsin, who was ahead in the polls, just said the quiet part out loud that if he is elected, the Republicans, quote, will never lose another election in Wisconsin. Then we'll speak with Ambassador Stephen Piper, a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and a fellow at the Center for International Security and Cooperation at Stanford University. He served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State in the Bureau of European and Eurasian Affairs, U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine and Special Assistant to the President and a Senior Director for Russia, Ukraine and Eurasia on the National Security Council. He's the author of a number of books, including The Eagle and the Trident, U.S.-Ukraine Relations in Turbulent Times and Averting Crisis in Ukraine. And we'll discuss how Putin is hoping for a Republican victory on Tuesday, leading to less U.S. support for Ukraine. Then finally, we'll look into the record number of missiles North Korea has just launched, including an ICBM, as the North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un appears to be trying to get America's attention because he's been largely ignored since his brief romance with Trump, which yielded nothing more than photo ops and love letters. Joining us is Nathan Park, a non-resident fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, whose research interests include the Korean Peninsula, political economy, and East Asian regional relationships and trade. And he writes frequently about politics and economics in East Asia for the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, CNN, and foreign policy, among others. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now, John Nichols, who's The Nation magazine's Washington correspondent. His books include People Get Ready, The Fight Against a Jobless Economy and a Citizen-Less Democracy, The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, The Enduring Legacy of Henry Wallace's Anti-Fascist, Anti-Racist Politics, and most recently, Coronavirus Criminals and Pandemic Profiteers, Accountability for Those Who Caused the Crisis. And his latest article at The Progressive is... What's at stake in the midterms, electoral democracy as we know it? Welcome to Background Briefing, John Nichols. It's great to be with you, my friend. Well, thanks for joining us, John. And last night, 
President Biden made a very powerful speech. I'm not sure that it moved the needle in terms of Republicans, although, I mean, it seems like he kept repeating the fact that he spent some, you know, obviously with his long career in the Senate, he worked in a bipartisan fashion with a lot of of his Republican colleagues. It's a very different party today. So I suppose it was tactically smart for him to keep suggesting that there's a distinction between MAGA Republicans and the rest of the Republican Party, as if there's anybody left in the Republican Party uh, that's not a MAGA Republican, in, in the hope that at least peeling off a few of them, what kind of percentage do you think is left to harvest, if indeed that's possible? Well, that's a very good question. It might even be the million, or if you're looking at spending in this year's campaign, the billion dollar question. Um, What we know is this. There uh, is a clearly strong, committed core. It certainly looks like a a solid majority of the Republican Party. It's very closely aligned to Donald Trump uh, at the base level and and even moving up uh, through the levels of political leadership. Some folks are aligned to him because they actually agree with him. Some folks are aligned because uh, they don't think there's any other place to be in the party. But the bottom line is that, that Trump is the dominant figure. It's his party. Uh, the portion that, that actually rejects him uh, is probably divided into uh, two camps. One, folks who reject him and have essentially broken with the party. That was sort of like Liz Cheney and people like that. And, and that's a, a small group, but a significant group. The other group is folks who you know clearly don't like Trump that much, but are staying with the Republicans because they dislike the Democrats more. And and I, you know, I hesitate to to suggest what percentage that is, because I think it's a changing reality at any given time. But I I would expect that it's probably, you know, someplace in the range of uh, a fifth to a a third of the party, maybe that 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 actually is, you know, that level of uncomfortable with Trump. But it's really hard to say. And in a way, Ian, it doesn't matter because. What, what matters is how people are actually gonna vote. And if we look at the polling, self-identified Republicans in this, rate, in this election year tend to be saying that they're gonna vote for Republican candidates at a rate of around 90 to 95%. Well, in your state, Wisconsin, the quiet part was said out loud, was it not, by Tim Michaels, who's challenging the Democratic incumbent uh, Governor Tony Evers. Michaels is a construction company owner. He's been endorsed by Trump. Uh, he's an election denier. And in fact, why don't we just play a clip of what he said? Republicans will never lose another election in Wisconsin after I'm elected governor. It's extraordinary, isn't it? That this is what's at stake, and this is why Biden made the speech, and I thought it was a really well-written speech. You know, obviously Biden's not the greatest deliverer of a speech, but I thought he did really well. I just, mm-hmm. I just wonder what the impact will be at this late stage. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think it's a factor. And, and so, first off, let's, let's you know, look at that, what Michaels is saying. You know, Michaels is sent as a candidate for governor of Wisconsin, like candidates in a number of other states, sent very, very uh, concerning signals about whether they would certify elections, you know, whether they would actually accept election results that they don't want. And that sort of goes to the heart of the American democratic experiment. You know, will will you accept results uh, even if you get defeated? If you do, then the process goes forward. If you refuse to do so, then 
you know, you get into a crisis situation, somewhat like what we saw after the 2020 election, but perhaps even worse. And so uh, what Biden's trying to address is this reality that you actually have a number of candidates out there who are suggesting that they might not accept election results or are saying that they plan to restructure election you know, systems, election oversight in their states to such an extent that, you know, Democrats are saying it would be, you know, really biased, like, you know, intensely biased against them. Um, and so what Biden's saying is, do you really want this? Is this the America you want? Now, I think that at this late stage and considering, you know, the, the hyper-partisanship of the moment, it's unlikely he's going to move a, a massive number of people. But when I look at Senate races around the country and gubernatorial races, I'm seeing a ton of close races, you know, the races where the differences are two or even one percent, some places tied. And so uh, I think what Biden's hoping, what he's betting is that a, a well-crafted defense of democracy with a call to action might get, you know, one or two or three percent of people to think about uh, voting for a Democratic candidate against a Republican candidate in a key race. If he's right on that calculus, this could be an incredibly significant speech because we're not talking about shifting, you know, tens of millions of people. In many states, we're talking about shifting 20 or 30,000 people, maybe less. Well, the bad news is, though, in Wisconsin, according to 538, Tim Michaels has a 1.6 point lead over the incumbent Democratic Governor Tony Evers. Yeah, and yeah. if he's elected, he won't certify the votes, right? But that, of course, will be for 2024. Well, I mean, look, he sent mixed signals about that, you know, saying lots of different things. I think as he's gotten called out on it, he's, he's tried to soften some of his statements. But yes, his initial statements were very clear, saying that, that he, would, uh, he would not certify election results, uh, or refusing to say uh, if he would certify election results. And, um, and I think AP had a report just the other day that um, he's been unclear about that issue. So um, wherever he's at, it's kind of a messy situation. And uh, I, I think what, what you're talking about is, is a circumstance where you have somebody who is very competitive, could be elected governor of the state, who has sent these, these unclear signals, and even in some cases more concerning signals, about their commitment to democracy. The um, Marquette uh, University poll that came out yesterday and the Marquette poll is a very well-respected poll. It's done by the law school there. Um, it said the race was a tie among likely voters. And, and I think that's probably pretty close to true. Um, both campaigns are pulling out all the stops in the, in the final 72, or I guess it's a little more than 72 hours, but uh, the next few days of campaigning. And, and it is intense. I can't begin to tell you. In Wisconsin, the advertising on TV is wall-to-wall. Um, you know, people are coming in to campaign for the different candidates. Uh, the candidates themselves are, are racing around the state. And I think we're coming to a very close result. Now, I think that's what's important to understand about that is that Wisconsin usually has close results. This is common in Wisconsin. In uh, Of the last six presidential elections, four were decided by under 25,000 votes. Uh, the 2018 gubernatorial election was decided by under 30,000 votes. And so if you understand that, a close election is something that uh, both sides are pretty familiar with. And I will tell you that I think the Democrats have a history 
of doing pretty well as they did in 2018, as they did in 2020, of you know pulling out enough votes to to just just make it across the line. And I think that is within the realm of possibility this time as well. But obviously, most of the punditry seems to suggest that the Republicans will pick up the House and maybe the Senate. But one of the key Senate races that the Democrats need to win is in Wisconsin. And the most beatable Republican of all, as far as I can tell, apart from maybe Herschel Walker, is Ron Johnson, who wants to get rid of Social Security and Medicare. So what's happened to Mandana Barnes? I mean, why has he turned out to be so... I don't know. I mean, his initial ads were of him making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And a lot of a uh, lot of his uh, supporters are asking, you know, where's the fire? Where, you know, I mean, Obama came in there recently and made an incredibly powerful speech. So what are the chances there? Or what's the explanation for why Ron Johnson is, I don't know where he is on the polls, but he's if, if he's not ahead, he's even. Yeah, look, Right now, the uh, polling has suggests that this is a very close race. The Marquette poll that came out on Wednesday uh, had Johnson at 50 percent, Barnes at 48 percent. So that's a, a two point difference well within the margin of error, meaning it, it could be either way. And so, again, I think like the governor's race, the, the Senate race is a very, very close contest. Um, it is true that that in late September, early October, when the Johnson campaign and, and Johnson's backers were really uh, running an incredibly intense negative advertising campaign against Barnes, that Barnes went down in the polls some. It looks like Barnes has closed that gap a lot in the last uh, couple weeks. He had some very strong debate performances, which I think generally got very high marks. And so at this point, I think that that Barnes is very much in the competition. Uh, It does, uh, as you suggest, uh, beg the question of, you know, why is it so hard to beat Ron Johnson? Because Ron Johnson is such a controversial and scandal-plagued uh, United States senator. And I think the thing that people uh, need to understand is something that's separate from Wisconsin. It's really a national issue this time. Uh, you just cannot begin to imagine how much money has flowed into these races uh, on behalf of these vulnerable Republican candidates. You know, usually in the past, if you had a very vulnerable candidate, the party and donors kind of shied away from them and, and just didn't bring the money in. You know, they just accepted oh, this. This person doesn't look good. You know, we'll, we'll put our money elsewhere. That's not what's happened this time around. I mean, Ron Johnson has easily outspent Mandela Barnes with highly negative ads. Um, similarly, in Georgia, if you look at Herschel Walker, he's had all the money he needs to, um, you know, again, run a very intense campaign down there. And so even and, and Dr. Oz in, in Pennsylvania, uh, you see these candidates who have a lot of vulnerabilities, but they're heavily funded and packaged, frankly. And that's, that is one of the realities. I think you also put one other reality in the mix, Ian, and that is that this is a midterm election year. And in midterm elections, usually the party that is in opposition to the party that holds the White House, no matter what else is going on, that party that's in opposition to the party that holds the White House tends to have advantages. It tends to do better. And um, and so in many cases around the country, you see these Democratic Senate candidates kind of going up against um, that reality, that that complexity. What's striking to me at this point is when I look at the polls, um, it, Mandela Barnes is clearly competitive in Wisconsin, in the latest poll within two points. Uh, John Fetterman looks to be holding his own either, you know, tied or ahead in uh, Pennsylvania. 
Tim Ryan in uh, Ohio looks to be, you know, very competitive there. And so just on those three states, you've got, and three kind of classic Midwestern battleground states, you have in a midterm election cycle, Democratic candidates who could win. Uh, the challenge now, of course, is, is mobilization. It, you're sort of beyond the messaging point to the, the point where, you know, can you get people to the polls? And that's going to be, you know, the battle right up through election night on Tuesday. Well, it, all of what you say is obviously true, and that's why I guess conventional wisdom is that the Republicans will pick up the House because of the tradition, if that's the right word to use, of the incumbent in the White House usually suffers losses, and certainly Obama did it massively in 2010. But is there an outside chance that there's a surprise? There's a, quite a lot of... Uh, voting going on in Georgia and other states that indicate that maybe we could be in for a surprise. I mean, I guess it coupled with your point that there has to be mobilization, obviously, but I'm just wondering whether the pollsters are missing something. Uh, you know, look, they are always missing something because uh, polling has become a, a much less steady art form, if you will, in recent years. Many people are harder to communicate. Many people don't talk to pollsters. Um, I think there's clear evidence that among Republicans, there is a skepticism of a lot of polling groups. And so you may have Republicans under poll. Young people who tend to be more Democratic uh, tend to be harder to reach by pollsters for a variety of reasons. And so I, I would definitely say that in this incredibly volatile year, uh, we should be very careful about buying into Kind of traditional analyses or traditional theories. Now, I, I just stated one a moment ago, and that is that usually in midterms, the outsider party does better. And I'll hold that that's, I, I think that's a, something that, that you can have a measure of confidence in. But there are so many other factors this year that may undo that. And you do have the question of uh, whether uh, women, particularly younger women, will turn out in uh, unexpectedly high numbers or higher than usual numbers to uh, defend abortion rights, which is a huge issue in states like Wisconsin, Michigan, really across the whole country. You also have the question of whether a, a late closing issue could turn into something pretty significant. And it's something that both uh, Barack Obama and Joe Biden have been talking about a lot in the last week. I don't know why they didn't talk about it earlier. And that is the threat to Social Security and Medicare. And um, that evidence suggests that that's actually a very, very potent issue for the Democrats if they deliver the message effectively. Again, it's very late in the game to do that, but there's some potential there, especially because older voters, uh, a lot of them uh, tend to vote on election day, not not always, but uh, a good portion. And so uh, there is still some time to deliver that message. And and then the final factor, of course, is, you know, how how concerned are people? How scared are people? about the direction of the country. And um, that's a very hard thing to, to survey. It's a tough thing to pull, to kind of quantify it. And yet um, in 2018, four years ago, there's no question that there was a surge of voters who were deeply concerned about Donald Trump's presidency and chose to come to the polls uh, and had a profound impact on the 2018 cycle in states across the country. Uh, if you have a similar surge at the end of people who are just saying, boy, I better get up and go out and vote because I'm really worried about you know, some of the threats to democracy, some of these other issues, um, you, could still have, you could still have surprises. And I, I, I don't rule that out at all. 
Well, we've run out of time, John, but I mean, the point, I hope it's been made, and I think Biden tried to make it last night, is this may be your last chance to vote before your vote becomes meaningless. That is, I don't think, hyperbole. It is, you know, many of my friends call me and and people I run into say, you know, it feels like we're living in Nazi Germany in the 1930s and fascism is just around the corner. This is an incredibly consequential moment. And I know Biden tried to make that case. And I wish, at least in the last few days, the Democrats could hammer that one home. Well, this is an incredibly volatile moment. There's no question of that, Ian. And um, whatever comparisons you make to the past, right, you know, may or may not be relevant to the the specifics of right now. But at the heart of the matter is we just know that huge numbers of Americans, I think a majority, uh, when you look at, at polling data, are deeply concerned about the direction of the country and are deeply concerned about the, the deep divisions, the anger, the threats. Um, and so that is a potent factor in politics. And, you know, it's it's a question of whether these people turn out and whether they vote their concerns. If they do, then I think there is a, a very good chance that Democrats have a, a at the very least, a much better midterm election night uh, than would usually be the case. So we will see on November 8th, and then we can talk about it again and, you know, either either say we were very wise uh, in predicting things or that, uh, that we're in shock. Well, John Nichols, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks, Ian. And I've been speaking with John Nichols, who is The Nation magazine's Washington correspondent. His books include... The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, The Enduring Legacy of Henry Wallace's Anti-Fascist, Anti-Racist Politics, and most recently, Coronavirus Criminals and Pandemic Profiteers, Accountability for Those Who Caused the Crisis. And his latest article at The Progressive is What's at Stake in the Midterms, Electoral Democracy as We Know It. We're going to take a brief station break back looking into how Putin is hoping for a Republican victory on Tuesday, leading to less support for Ukraine. Wash your choice. Wash your choice. Tell me who do you love? Am I the one? Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Ambassador Stephen Pfeiffer, who is a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and a fellow at the Center for International Security and Cooperation at Stanford University. He served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State in the Bureau of European and Eurasian Affairs, U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine, and Special Assistant to the President and Senior Director for Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia on the National Security Council. In addition to Kiev, he had postings in London, Moscow, Geneva, and Warsaw, as well as on the National Security Council. And he's the author of a number of books, including The Eagle and the Trident, U.S.-Ukraine Relations in Turbulent Times, and Averting Crisis in Ukraine. And he has an article at The Guardian, We Can't Afford U.S. Congress Wavering in Its Support for Ukraine. Welcome to Background Briefing, Ambassador Stephen Piper. So where do you think we stand then on support for Ukraine? Obviously, there's a concern that the Republicans could take the House and possibly the Senate. And there's been signals, of course, from who would be then the Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, of not giving a blank check. 
there's a kind of far, I guess, far right caucus in the in the Republican Party and in the country at large. You know, the Stephen Bannon people, who seem to have a peculiar affection for Putin. But my understanding is the polls indicate that about 85% of the American people support supporting Ukraine. So, how solid do you think that is? Well. I think there is strong public support in the United States for Ukraine. That's good news. And actually, if you look over the last 30 years, there really has been a history of strong bipartisan support by both Republicans and Democrats for Ukraine. Um, But uh, we have seen the Republican Party change in the recent years. Uh, So I do worry a bit that the mega wing of the Republican Party, which is, I think, not the full Republican Party. It perhaps is a minority of the Republican Party. Uh, But you have seen them raise questions about supporting for Ukraine, including the uh, comments that uh, Kevin McCarthy made uh, two weeks ago. Of course, he would like to become the uh, next uh, Speaker of the House. Uh, And so I think that has caused concern uh, about what might happen with the Republicans to take one or both houses of Congress uh, in the midterms next week. Uh, Certainly, it's something that the Russians are probably following very closely. And unfortunately, comments like that, I'm afraid, perhaps give Moscow some reason to hope that um, cracks may be appearing in the solidarity of Western support for Ukraine. And that will reduce Russian incentives, to my mind, uh, to try to actually find a real way out of this war and actually seek a real negotiation or simply just withdraw from Ukraine. Well, it seems as though... Putin is an, has an alliance with Mohammed bin Salman. They dominate OPEC plus. They apparently, even the Russians were surprised at how much MBS wanted to cut production in order to raise the price of gas prior to this election. There's no secret that both Putin and the Saudi crown prince both want Trump to come back. So isn't the price of oil a huge factor here? And it, it, of course, it also relates to the pressure on Europe uh, with the cutoff of oil and gas. I mean, clearly what OPEC plus doesn't want is a bias cartel, since they're a producer's cartel, and putting a cap on Russian oil would be a first step in that process. So is that also a a battlefront in this uh, war? Yeah. No, I I mean, I think, uh, let's be clear, uh, Russia's fighting a two-front war. Uh, one front they're losing on is that is their inability to defeat the Ukrainian army on the battlefield in Ukraine. But the second front is trying to undermine Western support for Ukraine. And the Russians would hope to see that that would mean a cutoff on Western financing for Ukraine, but also Western arms and weapons for Ukraine. Uh, now, having said that, uh, the polls so far show, I think, American support fairly solid. There was a poll done by the University of Maryland about two weeks ago, and it said that about two-thirds of Americans were prepared to support Ukraine, even if it meant higher energy prices and if it meant inflation. Uh, I happened to be in Europe about three weeks ago. I spent about five days in Germany, and my sense there was that in Germany, um, they're becoming more confident that while it won't be easy, uh, that they will be able to get through this winter with the very diminished supplies of Russian energy that they're they're getting. So I'm hoping that this second front uh, holds uh, and that the Russians are disappointed there as well. Uh, Just one comment on Saudi Arabia, and I have to say I am not an expert on the Saudis, but it does seem like the United States has huge leverage with Saudis. I mean, 
Their Air Force is basically provided by the United States, uh, as are other significant parts of their military. Uh, I think what the Saudis did uh, was unconscionable, and the timing was definitely aimed at the political purpose. And I hope that the Biden administration and Congress find some ways to uh, employ American leverage against Saudi to send the Saudis a message that uh, if they want to be a partner, these kinds of actions are not acceptable. And what about Netanyahu and the Israeli right? I mean, they don't seem to support Zelensky. He's been very upset about the fact yeah. that he's not getting support from Israel who have the kind of technology he needs because the Russians are raining down cruise missiles and Iranian drones. And you would think the fact that Iran now is a huge weapon supplier for Russia and maybe <laughs> literally providing them with their tip of the spear, if you will. Isn't that a little ironic that they uh, won't support Ukraine on the one hand, the Israeli right, but on the other hand, they're obsessed with Iran? Uh, no, I think there's an issue there. Um, I mean, my my sense is that for Netanyahu, but actually for anybody uh, in the leader, Israeli leadership, there is a sense of issue here, which is there, as a result of Russia back in the 1990s, opening up easy immigration a significant amount number a significant number of the Israeli population now actually are Jews who left Russia and my guess is the politicians in in Israel have to you know take account of that factor but having said that I think it still is disappointing that the Israelis have not been more supportive of uh, Ukraine clearly the victim of uh, of uh, Russian aggression here. And uh, the Israelis, I think, have some capabilities of things like uh, the Iron Dome system that could be very useful in protecting uh, uh, protecting uh, Ukrainian cities from attacks by some of these uh, uh, Iranian drones. So you mentioned having been in Germany recently and how they feel that they can get through the winter. How about in Ukraine itself? Because Putin is deliberately destroying their infrastructure for electricity and water. So they're going to have a really cold winter. But what's your reading on their morale? Because that's clearly Putin's tactic, isn't it? To break yep. the will of the people. He certainly can't break the will of the uh, the soldiers because they're highly motivated, and unlike his soldiers, who a lot of them are mercenaries, a lot of them are criminals, a lot of them are, you know, under the Chechen warlord Hadirov and a lot of them are just these. They've just thrown forty-one thousand recruits that are barely trained into the battle. So, um, yeah, is a lot of a, Russian, go ahead. Yeah, a lot of the Russian soldiers are they're they're mobilized people who don't want to be there, and you know they're throwing them into the front lines with very little training, very little time, and even I mean you know military experts will say it's not just a matter of training, but in order to you know have people work together. And, and and perform in a cohesive way to make a unit combat effective, you know, that, that's a months-long operation. And, and so my guess is that the Russians are going to be sending these people into battle, and they're not going to do that much to change uh, Russian fortunes on the on the front lines. Um, so that, that's, that's going to be how this plays. Now, on the question of Ukrainian morale, uh, I think it's a mistake for the Russians to underestimate the resilience and the determination of the Ukrainian population. It's going to be unpleasant. Uh, but I wonder if the Kremlin is not making yet another mistake here 
in expecting that the kinds of attacks that they are launching on civilian infrastructure will weaken morale, when it could also have the exact opposite impact, that it could strengthen the determination of Ukrainians to defeat the Russians. And I believe if you look at a whole line of Russian miscalculations, uh, we've seen these kinds of indiscriminate attacks with missiles on cities before. We saw what they did to Mariupol, where after three months they reduced most of the city to uh, destroyed and damaged buildings. And in each case, one had the sense that the Russians thought this will undermine Ukrainian morale. And I would argue that in each case, in fact, it strengthened their morale and their determination to prevail. Because what they see is they, they understand that what losing to Russia would mean. They've seen it in places like Mariupol. They've seen it in towns that they've liberated, such as Birch and Irpin. Uh, they've seen the torture chambers, you know, the mass graves, uh, the filtration camps. Uh, again, I, I, the Russian fighting to date has, to my mind, only strengthened Ukrainian determination to resist. And I wonder if their current tactics are going to be uh, strengthening that determination even further. But given how the Russian military is underperforming, a lot of it's to do with systemic corruption, is it not? I mean, Russia is a kleptocracy, and the last thing that Putin seems to get his head around is that one of the reasons why he's failing is that he oversees a mafia state. And with Prigozhin now, his chef challenging the military, it's, uh, the Russian military itself, for leadership, you know, the Siloviki are sort of pounding away at the professional Russian military and suggesting that they should be able to take over. But my understanding is that there's still a professional Russian army left that's defending Kherson. So is that going to end up being a costly battle for the Ukrainians? Well, yeah, two points. I mean, first on the Kherson point, then let me come back to the impact of corruption in the Russian defense sector. Um, on Kherson, it's interesting. Today, there are reports that, for example, um, the administration building in Kherson city is no longer flying the Russian flag. There are reports of uh, checkpoints being abandoned. Uh, and so it, it may not be yet that the Russians have fully withdrawn, but one report suggested that what they were doing was re they were pulling their more seized and veteran troops out of Kherson back to the eastern bank of the Dnieper River and replacing them with newly mobilized folks, um, in which case there will be a battle, but you know it, it should be one that uh, the Ukrainians in the end will prevail in. And thus far, I think the Ukrainians have fought this in Battle of Kherson, which really began back in August, uh, with a lot of intelligence, is they've not used frontal assaults, they've not done things that would expose a lot of their troops, but they've been very careful, uh, first and foremost, in attacking the bridges and crossing points and, and making it uh, difficult uh, for the Russians to supply their forces in Kherson. And I would expect that the uh, Ukrainians would pursue their campaign to liberate Kherson with the same intelligence and tactical uh, smartness that we've seen over the last three months. Uh, I, I wanted to come back to the point about the defense sector. I mean, uh, there's a lot of corruption in Russia's economy and society. And there was absolutely no reason to assume that that corruption did not affect the defense sector. And you know, if you look at the Russian military budget over the last, say, 10 to 12 years, they poured hundreds of billions of dollars into buying new weapon systems to modernize their military. 
And I think what they're finding now is a lot of those weapon systems do not work according to the specs. Uh, and my guess is a lot of the money that went into procuring those weapons, in fact, never made it to buying weapons, but ended up being diverted in someone's pocket. And thus, the Russian military is showing that it does not have the sorts of capabilities that it thought it purchased. And, and it has, to, I, has it, to turn to Iran and North Korea for arms. It's pretty amazing that uh, that you know now uh, Russia's at a point where it's asking Iran and North Korea for missiles and ammunition. Uh, it sort of supports the joke that's been making the round in Kiev for uh, several months now, which is that uh, Russia has gone from the second most powerful military in the world to the second most powerful military in Ukraine. So, just uh, in the last couple of minutes, uh, Ambassador Piper. I just spoke uh, with Charles Kupchin yesterday, who's had a piece in the New York Times saying that there has to be a focus on finding a a way to avoid this war escalating to a confrontation between Russia and NATO. Obviously, everybody agrees with that. But is there a realistic path? Do you think the Ukrainians could make a deal with Putin? Yeah, no, I I, I respect Charles, but, but I disagree on this point. I mean, I do think at some point down the road, negotiations are going to become the way that this war probably gets settled. But having said that, I don't see the push for negotiations now or laying the basis for them now, uh, because I, I read Charles's article. You know, he did not give any indication that there was any sign that the Russian negotiating position has moderated at all. And if you look at the Russian demands, I mean, they have their original demands back in February. They've only escalated their demands in the last two months. You know, they've been losing on the battlefield, but now they've added the demand that Ukraine accept and recognize the annexation of Donetsk, Luhansk, Zaporizhzhia, and Kherson by Russia. So I, I just don't see a negotiation making any sense until there is some sense that the Russians are prepared to negotiate seriously in a manner that reflects, in fact, what's been happening on the battlefield for the last two months. Uh, and, and so uh, I, I disagree, I, I, and I don't think it's up to the United States to be pushing Ukraine on this. At some point, you know, there is a negotiation, there may be a negotiation to be had, but it's going to require that the Kremlin get a lot more serious. And if it's a negotiation to be held while there are Russian forces on Ukrainian territory, because of the sensitive questions that raises, that should be a call or decision for the Ukrainians to make. Now, there can be U.S.-Russian conversations about other things. I mean, I think we should try to have a conversation with the Russians to reduce the prospect for miscalculation between Washington and Moscow. Uh, But I don't think it's our business to get in and start trying to negotiate for the Ukrainians uh, on issues that really have to be decisions taken in Kyiv. Well, Ambassador Piper, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Ambassador Stephen Piper, who's a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and a fellow at the Center for International Security and Cooperation at Stanford University. He served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State in the Bureau of European and Eurasian Affairs, U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine, and Special Assistant to the President and Senior Director for Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia on the National Security Council, and is the author of a number of books, including The Eagle and the Trident, U.S.-Ukraine Relations in Turbulent Times, and Averting Crisis in Ukraine. And he has an article at The Guardian, We Can't Afford U.S. Congress Wavering in Its Support for Ukraine. 
going to take a brief station break and back looking into the record number of missiles North Korea has launched, including an ICBM, as the North Korean dictator appears to be trying to get America's attention since he's been largely ignored after his brief romance with Trump, which yielded nothing more than photo ops and love letters. I have breathed all the sea. You're our friend. Prophecy, our destiny we will not hide when the sun comes up, it will be on your side. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24 7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Nathan Park, who is a non-resident fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, whose research interests include the Korean Peninsula, political economy and East Asian regional relationships, and trade. He writes frequently about politics and economics in East Asia for the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, CNN, and foreign policy, among others. Welcome to Background Briefing, Nathan Park. Hello. So, Nathan, what's going on with uh, North Korea here? Is Kim Jong-un trying to get America's attention? He's certainly got the attention of South Korea and Japan. There's been a flurry of missile tests, a record number, some landing very close to South Korea's territorial waters. And then just yesterday, he launched a intercontinental ballistic missile that was heading over Japan, but apparently something went wrong in its mid-flight and it crashed into the uh, sea of Japan, and it's really alarmed the Japanese. So why is all this happening, do you think? Right. So let's contextualize this first. Yeah, as you mentioned, Ian, that we have a record number of North Korean uh, missile tests over this past few days. Just to put it in perspective, over the past few days, North Korea has fired more missiles than it did in all of 2017, when the tensions were at its highest and uh, President Donald Trump at the time was uh, threatening fire and fury and, uh, and a lot of people in Washington, D.C. genuinely thought that we were at a brink of war with North Korea at the time. And the provocations by North Korea at this moment is greater than that, short of a nuclear testing. And a lot of experts and a lot of intelligence agencies have said that North Korea's nuclear testing may be imminent as well. And this has been all happening. The reason why it is happening now and is keep hap- it keeps happening is because, dip- uh, because diplomacy has continued to fail. There was a moment of thaw between two Koreas and the United States, especially in, the, in 2018, uh, going to early 2019, when there was a concerted effort by Washington and Seoul to reach out to Kim Jong-un and held a series of summit meetings involving uh, President Trump, uh, South Korean president at the time, uh, President Moon Jae-in, and uh, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. But since then, um, the talks broke down, the the denuclearization talks broke down when President Trump and Kim Jong-un met in Vietnam. And since then, there just has been no progress. And at this point, uh, North Korea decided that it is time now again to ramp ramp up the pressure such that there would be 
uh, they would have the initiative in dictating the uh, events going forward. Well, this, the in response to these, this flurry of North Korean missile tests and this ICBM test, the Defense Secretary, Lloyd Austin, said, quote, any nuclear attack against the United States or its allies and partners, including the use of non-strategic nuclear weapons, is unacceptable and will result in the end of the Kim regime. So it's not quite fire and fury, but it's a threat, right? So what do you think Kim's response is going to be to that? Well, Kim Jong-un is not suicidal, so I don't believe that he is raring to launch a nuclear attack on the United States or uh, any of its allies, including Japan and South Korea. But it's been a uh, it's been a pattern with North Korea to walk right up to the line and essentially dare the United States and Korea and South Korea and Japan to respond somehow. And this uh, makes me very concerned that we may be entering into this very dangerous phase because uh, because North Korea has known to conduct provocations in a way that cause human lives. Some examples I can think of is uh, uh, a shelling of Yeonpyeongdo Island happened about a decade ago, um, where, where it was a remote um, western island of South Korea where still some residents lived there and they were killed uh, by North Korea's artillery shells. There was also uh, a submarine attack on, on, on South Korean Navy ship. Uh, ROKS Chunan uh, that killed uh, over 50 sailors. So we may be headed to toward that direction, which really would be a very concerning thing. And you mentioned the possibility of a nuclear test. Do you think that's in the cards? I think that is in the cards. I think um, we, I th- it may take the form of a miniaturized nuclear nuclear warhead. Or uh, just to develop, just to show that North Korea has this capability of delivering this, um, delivering this far, far and away, including to the continental United States. So, in other words, would this be a, like a tactical nuclear weapon in the low kiloton range? Well, I am not a nuclear ex- nuclear weapons expert, so I'm not sure if I can truly answer that. But what I have said, what I have seen from people who are better informed than me in this type of weapon system is that North Korea has been working towards miniaturizing a nuclear warhead so that so that it will be delivered, it can be uh, delivered in an attack to uh, continental U.S. So so that that showing off that capability probably is going to be North Korea's next step. Right, but the miniaturized weapons that the U.S. has on its nuclear missiles, and it's the same with the Chinese and same with the uh, the Russians, uh, thermonuclear weapons. And I'm not sure that North Korea has, has reached that point. And if they did a thermonuclear test, then that would be really alarming for the, the West. It truly would be. So, again, Nathan Park, the question arises, is this almost like a delinquent acting up to get attention? I mean, what's going on here in terms of what does he want? This is happening at the time of the American elections. Clearly, the U.S. is distracted with domestic issues at the moment, particularly with this critical election coming up. What does he hope to gain by rattling our cage? 
He has to. Uh, his aim, uh, Kim Jong Un's aim, always is to obtain concessions from the United States, obtain sanctions relief, and uh, and ultimately some type of um, some type of an advantage in the inter-Korean relations. But here's an important point that we must consider: is North Korean North North Korean nuclear issue has been going on for so many years and has been intractable for so many years because the United States uh, failed to pay attention in a consistent and high priority manner. In my view, really the really the last time that the U.S. really focused on this issue was during the Trump presidency, and since since then. During the Biden administration, North Korea issue really fell off the priority list, and you know there's a, there are some good good enough reasons for this, which was which is the fact that the United States has a lot going on domestically. There's also uh, the obvious big world uh, world history event in uh, Ukraine Russia war. Nevertheless, uh, the fact that the North Korean North Korean nuclear issue always has been there. Lots of experts have urged that this needs to be a priority. Otherwise, uh, North Korea will have North Korea always has the way. Pyongyang always has the way to make itself a priority by conducting uh, tests, conducting tests like this. And do, by doing so, United States and South Korea and its allies are really simply reacting to the initiative of North Korea rather than taking initiative themselves. And of course, the difference now is that. In the past, China has helped uh, because it obviously has an important trade relations, shares a border, and has some sway over the Kim regime. But because of the tensions between the Biden administration and Xi Jinping, the U.S. can no longer count on China. I take it. That's correct, and it's been uh, there. There have been moments when China has been a China has been a bit more cooperative. When it comes to sanctioning North Korea for um, for developing nuclear weapons, because destabilizing the region is not in the interest of China either. But you bring up a really good point, Ewan, which which is that just neglecting the North Korea issue also really does not help when it comes to U.S.-China relations, because North Korea will keep developing nuclear weapons and keep destabilizing the region. So United States really needs to get serious about putting the North, North Korean issue at its priority list and be proactive about addressing the issue. Well, there are reports that Japan is negotiating with the U.S. to purchase hundreds of Tomahawk cruise missiles, which could, of course, reach not just North Korea but China. Obviously, Japan is not a nuclear power, but the fact that they could be purchasing delivery weapons that could deliver nuclear weapons, that's got to get China's attention, right? And Japan could fairly quickly become a nuclear power. They got quite a lot of plutonium from their civilian power reactors, and I'm sure they have the technical know-how how to build a nuclear weapon. So is that something that is getting China's attention? I mean, in other words, they don't want a nuclear arms race, do they, the Chinese? Particularly, they want Japan to go nuclear. Right. Uh, now we're talking about sort of a nuclear cascade, and there's actually a very uh, active debate, for example, in South Korea 
uh, as to whether or not it wants to be it wants to develop or obtain its nuclear uh, its own nuclear weapons. So that that's another issue that China must be must be faced with. There's another angle to this, which is that part of the reason why North Korea nuclear uh, North Korea wants to develop nuclear weapons is because there is such a buildup of conventional weapons on uh, on the part of South Korea, especially and Japan too. Um, you mentioned Tomahawk missile um, from Japan, but South Korea domestically has developed ballistic, um, medium-range ballistic missiles that could cover the entirety of the entirety of North Korea and the eastern shore of China if necessary. So, uh, so as far as North Korea is concerned, it has this from their perspective, it has this insurmountable gap in conventional weaponry against South Korea, and therefore they're incentivized to develop nuclear weapons. In, um, to, to to gain balance over that. So that also makes this issue very intractable. So then what should the U.S. do to break the ice here? And obviously you can't continue to ignore Kim Jong-un and he's obviously trying to get the U.S.'s attention. And the U.S. obviously doesn't want him to reach this threshold where he does have it into the continental ballistic missile and the ability to put a warhead on it that would threaten the United States. I don't know whether that's his intention, but that seems to be the assumption on our side. Obviously, with Trump, apparently in, in these stolen documents, these top-secret documents that Trump doesn't want to give up, he was trying to hold on to these the, the so-called love letters between him and Kim. Clearly, Trump was out of his depth and was a complete idiot and an amateur in terms of foreign policy. But surely there are more seasoned people on the American side that could start negotiations. So is there any, I know that's something that you're calling for, is there any hint that that could happen? Right. So, I mean, I don't have any kind words to say about Donald Trump either uh, and his approach to uh, foreign policy a lot of times was clownish. But I'll say just about one shine, one silver lining about his presidency is that at least in terms of priority, he treated North Korea as a high priority item, which is, you know, he may have landed, you know, he may he may have landed backwards into it, but nevertheless, that's actually the correct that that is actually the correct approach. In terms of responses, it's very important to. Uh, Dial down first of all the military tensions. Um, there could be a there could be an agreement for uh, freeze for freeze, as in exchange the U.S. South Korea joint drills in exchange for um, in exchange for secession of missile tests and nuclear weapons tests. At least to get to a point where the two sides can begin to have a conversation. Down the line, we can consider a. Uh, formal end of the Korean War by having a de- having a declaration, the end of war declaration coming from the United States and South Korea, and eventually working towards a peace regime that gradually builds trust between the two Koreas, uh, and and eventually move eventually move towards North Korea's demilitarization and uh, and peaceful inter-Korean relations. And. Is there any indication that anybody's thinking about it in the Biden administration? I am not privy to I am not privy to that conversation, so I really cannot say. I hope they do. 
Right. And in terms of South Korea, are they more, is this new government more predisposed to do something? I mean, as you mentioned, the previous government did meet with Kim, but it didn't go anywhere, right? Right. Um, And this does become a very difficult issue because a lot of times South Korea's initiative matters quite a bit, rightly so, because they are the, uh, the party that's most directly affected by all of this. But right now, the current president, Yoon Seok-yeol, is deeply unpopular, and he is showing to be a rather inept uh, practitioner of foreign policy. Each time he travels abroad, he, it ends in some type of an embarrassment or, or another. So it's difficult to say, even if difficult to say, even if he had the willingness to foster better inter-Korean rela- uh, relations, it's not clear if he can even if he can act his he and his government can actually execute that but this intercontinental ballistic missile test from north korea that just happened it caused the nuclear alarms to go off the sirens rang over seoul are the south korean people really conditioned to get to into their bomb shelters or or do they sort of shrug and think oh this is just another provocation uh, I'm not sure if um, you mean the sirens going off in Seoul. It, the sirens went off in uh, Ulungdo Island, which is the eastern, uh, a far, far, one of the farthest eastern um, islands of South Korea. I don't recall. I don't. I haven't seen anything that said uh, sirens went off in Seoul. Uh, but I think South Koreans are, um, to answer them more directly, I think South Koreans are getting a little concerned. You know, they have lived in the shadow of another Korean War for 60 years, 70 years. So there is some, there are certain, there are definitely some level of conditioning. But the fact that the provocations have been increasing, increasing to this unprecedented degree, it really is concerning. It's not just the missiles. For example, North Korea recently uh, scrambled all of its jets, for example, and uh, flew very close to South, uh, South Korea's own airspace and that that also is a very concerning development. At any moment, North Korea's artillery shells could um, fire towards Seoul, and and that another that is another factor that uh, should be concerned about. Well, Nathan Park, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Nathan Park, who's a non-resident fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, whose research interests include the Korean Peninsula, political economy, and East Asian regional relationship and trade. And he writes frequently about politics and economics in East Asia for the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, CNN, and foreign policy, among others. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. 
Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.